going to continue on in our series in the Gospel of Mark, um, starting at the 22nd verse of chapter 8. This is maybe one of the most famous stories in the Gospel uh, of Mark, and it's the point at which the, the Gospel of Mark begins to turn. It's the hinge point of, of Mark's Gospel. And uh, I was ready to preach it like that um, before everything happened on Friday. And now um, it's not less relevant, it's more. So you can listen, um, you can follow your own Bible, you can read on the screen whatever is best for you. And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he'd spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, others one of the prophets. But he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you that you feed and sustain your people by your word. You nourish us and care for us. And God, I pray that today we would receive that nourishment and care. I pray that our hearts would be open, that our minds would be open, so that our eyes would be open. Help us to see clearly. Jesus, we thank you for being with us here, being with your people, as you promised you always would be. It is in your name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> 
This is, uh, this is one of the more bizarre healing stories that, that's in the Gospels. It's entirely unique, actually, because Jesus seems to mess up. Um, he pulls out this man to heal him, heal his blindness. And uh, again, rather grossly, puts his spit all over the man's face. And he says, do you see? And it doesn't work. It doesn't work fully. The man sees something, but he doesn't see right. Apparently, he, he had been able to see before because he has something in his mind to be able to compare it to. He says, I see what looks like trees walking around because it looks fuzzy. And so Jesus goes again, and then he can see clearly. Uh, what is going on here? Did, uh, is this like a signal, a reception issue? Is Jesus, uh, is there like interference in the area? Is he tired and he just couldn't quite muster the needed healing power in his first go? It's bizarre if you leave it on its own. But the, the miracle is meant to help you understand what's happening now and the rest of the Gospel of Mark. So that you can have this image in your mind that Jesus is going to now bring clarity about who he really is and what it is he is coming to do. Because the next conversation moves in two phases with his disciples. He asks them, well, who do people say that I am? And they, what they say is, is not totally wrong. It's that Jesus is a prophet of some kind, and he is. But Jesus then asks for clarity and says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter gives a much more definite and clear response. You are the Christ. And it's tempting to think, to believe, okay, this is what has now happened that there was first a fuzzy answer, and now there's a clear answer. But in fact, Peter's clear answer, the next story shows, is actually not fully clear within himself. Because Jesus begins talking then about what it is that he's going to do. And Peter can't see it. Peter, when he says, you are the Christ... He has a very clear idea in his own mind about what that means. And Peter is not strange for this. He is a normal Israelite. He is saying, you are the anointed one. You are the one who will come to fulfill the vocation of Israel. You are the one who will sweep the field of all of Israel's enemies. You are the one, as Jesus calls himself, after this, the Son of Man prophesied in Daniel chapter 7, who will receive all kingly authority and power. When, when he says, you are the Christ, you are this one, he means those things. And those things are about the victory of God on behalf of the people of Israel. And so Jesus now begins talking about not victory in Peter's mind, but defeat, the most shameful form of defeat, that Jesus would be hung on a tree, cursed, 
as described in the book of Deuteronomy, Jesus would not be overpowering and overwhelming the Roman Empire. He would be subjugated by the Roman Empire, eliminated by the Roman Empire, murdered by the Roman Empire. This is the opposite of the vocation of the anointed one, of the Christ, of the Messiah. And so Peter pulls Jesus aside, and Peter, in the most Peter thing ever, then talks to the one who he has called the Christ and rebukes him and says, you don't know what you're talking about, in essence. And Peter is seen by Jesus. The disciples are seen by Jesus. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Peter, who is clearly identified, he thinks Jesus' true identity and vocation is now associated with one who is the accuser, the enemy of God's people. He says, you are talking like the devil. Get behind me. And then he sort of expands the conversation to everybody. He says, come here, listen. Listen to me and understand. If you want to follow me, you need to pick up your cross and follow. That, that language of picking up your cross, bearing your cross, that has gotten familiarized to us because of repu- repetition. But there is no precedent for what Jesus has said here. Nobody else has ever said something like this. It is as shocking and as senseless as saying, pick up your electric chair and follow me. And the people are are hearing Jesus say, if you want to follow me, pick up this emblem of shame and horror. That's what you must do to follow me. And if you cling to your life, you will lose it. If you want to live, you better be ready to die to follow me. Jesus is providing clarity about himself and about the task and the vocation of discipleship for his people. And he's saying it is not an option for you to just come along as you will, but to come and be ready to die with me, to be dying for me. And it will cost you everything. And somehow, we have taken the words of Jesus and we have constructed means and ways of following him that totally erase what he is saying. Especially in the place and the time that we live, it is incredibly difficult to hear with our own comfortable American ears the idea that there might be any kind of cost or discomfort in following Jesus. Because it costs us nothing in this place, in this time. It largely requires no suffering of us. And now we create language to basically say to one another, anything that might be difficult or challenging or hard for you, Jesus would never ask you to do that. He wouldn't do that to you. Or we'll do things like, 
we are so afraid of suffering with Jesus and suffering for him that we will create cultural systems, political systems, ways of our own life to eliminate any possibility of suffering because we are so deathly afraid that Jesus might be true and right about this thing too. But there is no other and alternative way to read and to hear what Jesus says. If you want to follow Jesus, death is in view for you. And this does not fit Peter's expectation. This does not fit the expectation of the people who are with him. Then it does not fit the expectation of the people who would even now follow him. Because what people want is a God who will meet them on the terms of their own agenda. Who will, who will eliminate the enemies that they personally despise most. Who will make them comfort, comfortable in their way of life and their self-assessment and who will ask nothing of you, but who will only do what you ask of him. When Peter says, you are the Christ, he means you are the conquering hero who will do for me exactly what I want. And when Jesus says that he is the Christ, he says that he is the conquering hero they will do exactly what you need. And you don't know the difference. Because my Christ and yours looks much more like the king on a war horse than it does the king on a cross. You will never, though, You will never see a Jesus worthy of dying for if you do not see him for what he says he will be, which is the Christ that will die for you. Peter does not understand that what he needs, what Israel needs, what the people need, is what Jesus says that he will do. Because Jesus will do the most needful thing. And he will die and be resurrected for his people. Why? Why is that the plan? Why? Mark is going to clarify this from this moment forward and the rest of his gospel will be all angled and pointed at the cross. Mark's vision is more cross-focused than any of the other gospels. He will spend so much time making the cross loom large in your vision and in mine as we read his story and we hear Peter's testimony. Why is it such a thing that Jesus would die on the cross? Why is it that that is what Jesus is doing. It's because little girls have lost hope to the extent that they would rather die. It's because this is the stakes. It is life and death. It is not some political agenda. 
It is not some accessory to your life. It's not a spiritual program. The stakes are life and death. And we can fool ourselves and delude ourselves into thinking that all I have is a little bit of spiritual discontent. I have a little spiritual itch that needs to be scratched. But Jesus refuses these kinds of programs and says the thing that is, is in view, the problem that you have is the grave, is the power of Sin is the power of hopelessness that would take a child and strangle them to death, losing hope and not wanting to live without it. Jesus sees clearly and he refuses to be any other kind of savior other than the one who would climb up on the cross. Jesus, the only kind of Savior that is worth you suffering and dying for, is not the most famous and powerful historical person you can imagine multiplied times a hundred. That would not be the most compelling and exciting and important person that has ever walked on the face of the earth. That would not be Jesus. The only most important, most compelling, most powerful person in the history of the world is the one who is himself. God and man and who would climb up on a cross bearing the shame and the pain and the awful weight of all of the world's evil and bringing it upon himself to climb into the grave because the grave is everything that is swallowing you up whole. There is no version of this story of Jesus' kingship that is as glorious, as glamorous, as provocative and powerful and meaningful as the crucified and resurrected Jesus. And if you cannot see that, if you cannot see with clarity who Jesus is now presenting himself to be in the gospel of Mark, then it will never make sense to you. You will be content, you'll be happy maybe to play this kind of game for the rest of your life. I'll do a little churchy thing. I'll come twice a month, maybe, when I feel like it, because when I have other plans, that's more comfortable and exciting to me. I'll protect my own life from the things that terrify me. I will never do anything that are truly costly or noteworthy that ever look like I'm following anybody but me. And it will be fine. Because Jesus does enough for me. And you will be like the man who stops at miracle one. Who can see a fuzzy tree walking around. And you'll say, that's enough for me. And you will lose your life. Because that's no way to live. It's a fuzzy way to see. It's a limited way to live. And the whole slope of your life will be angled to your grave anyway. And then you'll be done. 
That'll be it. But there is an alternative. There's a different way to see. There's a way to see clearly. To see truly. The God who made you hates the darkness, the murder, the sin of this world. And he would take his own people's delusions about what he should be and ignore them to give them something far better than what they could imagine. And he'll put himself on the cross and then he'll exit the grave. And what Jesus says to his followers is that this is the power of God. He says there's people who will not die until they see his power, the power of the coming of the kingdom. If you are looking for the power of the kingdom to look like comfort, security, riches, relational success, or any other thing, you are missing the power of God. If you understand instead that the sorrow of this world has been entered by the Son of God, the Anointed One, who would deliver you, if you would understand that the power of God is Jesus Christ crucified at the hands of the world's worst, that everything murderous and dark would throw their worst at him and he would embrace it willingly and he would die a horrible, shameful, naked, mocking death so that he can unmake everything that would rend a dark hole in the fabric of God's story. And when he exits the grave, that is the power of God. I cannot stand here and tell you everything now in your life will be fine. That is the opposite of what Jesus has just said. I cannot tell you that following Jesus is the way forward to success, towards happiness, towards getting everything that's on your checklist and wish list for your life. I can't tell you that, but I can tell you that Jesus is the only hope. He's the only one. He's the only one that would square up to the grave and take it on for you and for everybody else. This is your only shot. Everything else is a game. It's a delusion. It's fake. And it's dying as fast as you are. But the power of God is that you would be given the life of God himself and that even the grave when it comes for you, even the power of hopelessness and darkness and evil when it comes for you, still he will say to you, I will never leave you or forsake you. 
Even when your body itself goes into the ground, you cannot lose what he's given you. Because he endured the grave and overcame. And if you are here today, caught in the grip of sorrow, I have no Bible passage, I have no Bible reading to just erase your sorrows. All I can tell you is Jesus himself was called the man of sorrows. And his chief victory was to enter in to the worst of sorrows. To be where you are right now. To embrace the darkest of darkness. And to undo it. And I don't know when he's going to finish I don't know when we get to do the thing that we sang about in the second song. I wish it was five days ago. But he will finish what he started. And until then, in the midst of your sorrow, he will never leave you or forsake you. You have not been forgotten by the God of the cross. And if you are here today and you are hearing Jesus' words and you are saying, I don't, I don't see him like that. I wouldn't lay my life down. I'm not. I find Jesus to be sufficiently appealing to follow him on my own terms. And you are realizing that that is not what Jesus has for you. That is not his desire for you. This is a wake-up call. The Word of God is open before you because Jesus wants you to know that He is more valuable than that. There is nothing better than Him. Nothing. Whatever other kind of ulterior objective, whatever kind of motive flows through your own life, like it flows through all of ours, it is nothing compared to Him. He is so much better Whatever you're leveraging your life for, whatever has its hold on you, it is nothing like him. Nobody loves you like him. Nobody loves you as well as him. Nobody would do what he has done. No thing, no other person, no other person you haven't met yet or wish that's been fulfilled. There is nobody like him. There's nobody coming down the pipe and anything else that you've contented with in your whole life. It's not good enough. He has better for you. And if today you are realizing that, the response is very simple. He has not given up on you. Peter is a fool. And he is Jesus' friend. Jesus loves Peter and will love him until the end. And if you have been caught up in an alternative way of trying to get through life, your heart has been captured by a thousand and one other lesser appealing things. Jesus will be your friend even now. He will not dismiss you. He will not berate you. But when you turn and you come to him, he will embrace you and welcome you as one of his own.
So if today you are realizing your heart has been hard, you've seen fuzzy and seen fuzzy on purpose, repent. It just means turn around and come home. Just leave all of those other ways of being in the world. Let the crucified God be your God, be your friend, be the thing that your heart treasures above all others. And in him you will be home now and forever with no end in sight. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, we confess to you that we would say a thousand times what Peter had said. Let it not be so. No, not like this. And yet, God, the, the truth of the way the world is clarifies for us that the real Christ, the one that we need, could only ever be the one who was crucified for us. the worst that the world has to offer, you entered in. That you would unmake it and destroy it from within. God, help us see. Help us see our own lives clearly. Help us to see where we have compartmentalized you. We've, we've put you safe in a corner. We've put you where you can do what we want. We can feel good about ourselves. God, forgive us of our foolishness for wasting so much time on things that are fading. And Father, I pray for, for us who have pushed and controlled and fear, who have longed and hungered for many other things and have yet to see you as the most valuable, significant, important person in our lives. God, may we long for you the way you ought to be longed for. And Father, I pray that you would speak to the hearts of people here today who have never seen you clearly. And God, I pray that today you would work a miracle and you would fully restore their sight. Help them to see the stark realities of this world and the beauty, the glory, and the majesty of what you came to do. I thank you for befriending disciples like Peter, like us. Complete what you've begun in us, Lord Jesus that our eyes would be filled more and more with the vision of you. And God, we pray that that vision would extend not just to us, but to those who are perishing in hopelessness.
who would be killed in isolation and loneliness and despair. God, rescue the perishing. Let us love you well that we would run to do it with you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.